I mean, when, when Trump says he's nothing without me, he's sanctimonious, he's an amateur, whatever it is that Trump wants to say, and DeSantis is confronted with that, maybe even on a, on a debate stage, DeSantis ought to say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I think you were a great president. You, you are one of my heroes, and I have nothing bad to say about you. And in fact, I think you are a sad example of what can happen when there's an unfair media attack against an American. You have been mischaracterized and misportrayed, and it has compromised your electability. Woo! Okay, guys, a lot has happened since this episode was recorded. Since the midterm elections, we recorded this episode the Saturday after, and today is November 22nd, so a couple weeks have gone by, and since then, a few things have shaken out as far as the midterms are concerned. First, the Senate race in Nevada went blue, so the Democrats will retain control of the Senate. Second, the Georgia race wound up in a runoff, which we did know already, but Republicans did take the House, although with a slim majority. But we will have a split Congress in the start of the new year. So um, that's a new development. And the governor's race in Arizona has been called for Katie Hobbs. Although at this point, Carrie Lake has not yet conceded. And I believe she's planning on contesting it. So if you hear of us making any references to those different situations, those have clearly changed since this episode was recorded. And finally, the most significant development that we have seen since this episode was recorded, Trump announced he was running for president. And his speech caused a lot of buzz. A lot of what we talk about in this episode with my dad is, so Trump is getting in his own way. And a lot of DeSantis's supporters say that he's essentially Trump without the baggage. But that was before Trump gave his presidential speech. He, in a sense, is proving to people, proving to his critics that he can be Trump without the drama and look forward and not continue focusing on the 2020 election. So it'll be interesting to see the way that he carries himself now that he has actually and officially declared that he is running. If he stays in line with how his speech went, I would expect to see a lot more composed version of Trump to say that he is still the better version between them and DeSantis. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. But wanted to give you all just a quick disclaimer about a few of the things that have transpired since we recorded this episode. But I hope you enjoy it. My dad is super insightful and has a lot to say about politics. And he's been in that world for a really long time. So I hope you all enjoy the episode. Thanks, guys. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wine and Politics Podcast, where we bring two sides of the political aisle together or even on one side along the spectrum of political opinions and leanings and have a discussion about controversial issues and try to find common ground or at the very least learn something new. And this episode is a special edition because we will be unpacking all things general midterm election. But before we do that, I should tell you that we are not drinking wine this time because this guest tends to make me drink liquor instead. (laughs) (laughs) It gets you there faster. It really does. And you know what? Might as well talk about the lack of red wave with a side of Bloody Mary. Am I right? (laughs) There's a little red wave in that glass and that's about as much of a red wave as there was. It's so 
true. See, we did this on purpose. That's right. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome back my special guest, who was my first ever guest on this podcast, my dad, Bob Genevine. Woo woo. <laughs> welcome back. How are you feeling? Feeling good. Uh, well, I mean, I'm a Republican, so I'm feeling as good as possible, right. d- given what happened last Tuesday. Well, we've upgraded our equipment, so at least right now you're feeling more comfortable than you were the first time we recorded, huh? Yeah, this is pretty snazzy equipment. I have to hand it to you. <laughs> Thank you. See, you can just chill in your chair instead of worrying about making sure you're speaking directly into the microphone. So your podcast and Florida were the two bright spots of the last week. Thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> that. I try. Is that the first time you've been compared to Ron DeSantis? That is the very first time I've ever been compared to Ron DeSantis, <laughs> but I'm not making any complaints. The guy is a star. Rock star. Rock star. But before we get too biased on that front, everyone knows we're you know Republican conservatives over here, but I really do want us to take a good, hard, introspective look at what went down in that election and what the Republican Party could do differently, as well as what happens. I think that's our job. We have to do that. So I'm really, really looking forward to this discussion because there needs to be a change. And this election really showed that we're going the wrong way as a party. But before we jump into the actual conversation, I want to give you an idea of what the flow might look like. So first, I want to walk through what is currently happening. Today is Saturday, November 12th. Yesterday was Veterans Day. Um, and at this point, the elections in certain states hadn't even haven't even been called yet. So we'll see what's called once this episode airs, and maybe we could do a follow-up. But want to have a snapshot of what's currently happening in the country. Then I want to talk through the lack of the red wave and maybe exceptions to the rule. How did Florida do so well and how the Democrats performed? Because even Nancy Pelosi said that they outperformed expectations. So I want to talk through that. And then I do want to take a look inward. What does the Republican Party need to do differently? What did we do wrong this time around? And even talk through potentially other considerations. I want to spend some time talking about the Pennsylvania race because that is an interesting case study in exactly what I think went wrong with the rest of the country. The majority of the country kind of followed that trend. And then I want to land on what happens next. So what does that mean for the Democrats? What does that mean for Republicans? And what does it mean for 2024? Because after these elections are finally called in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Georgia in December, once we understand who controls Congress, the Senate and the House, people are going to start talking about 2024 and throwing their hat in the ring. So are you good with that flow? I'm good. All right, cool. So let's start with what's happening. What is the current landscape of the elections and what do we expect to happen? I think the most significant thing that is happening right now is the Nevada Senate race appears to be tilting blue, which means that the Republicans have no chance of controlling the Senate. Even if Herschel Walker wins in Georgia. Which we anticipate probably won't happen anyway, because Democrats historically do better in runoffs, right? Well, I'll tell you what, if, if Laxalt doesn't win in Nevada, why would you contribute a dollar to poor Herschel Walker's campaign? It's the difference between having 50 senators and the Democrats have control or 49 senators and the Democrats have control. Right. Because the vice president would be the tiebreaker no matter what. Right. I mean, it's, it's no better for Republicans. Well, I, we, we say that it would be better to have another Republican vote that you could count on. But control is probably uh, not in the balance anymore. The, the, the Democrats will continue to control the Senate. So last time I looked, the Nevada Senate race still hadn't been decided, but the Republican was in the lead. That, that's right. And that's, I think that's how it is right now. But the lead is literally a couple of hundred votes. And, and the votes that are being counted are generally blue votes. 
Uh, okay. And there's a lot more of, of that vote to count. I, I want to say Fox might have even called that for the Democrats already. I did see that Fox counted the Senate race in Arizona for the Democrats. Yeah, and he's already taken a victory lap, but... But you think Fox has already called it for Nevada? I don't want to say that. It's, it's possible they have, but I don't remember it specifically. The consensus is it, it really does look like the Democrats are going to uh, hold on to Nevada. Because it's already blue, right? I think that's right. Even though we thought it was going to be red? Right. So there's, there's a, a lot of difference between the polling information on the eve of the election and the vote count. Yeah. I mean, in New York, it was, you know, 10 points of difference. That's It's strange. It is really strange. And New York is an interesting one, too, because we did see House seats that were blue turned red. And a lot of people think that's because those Republicans were riding on the coattails of Lee Zeldin, who was running against Kathy Hochul for New York governor. But he seemed, even though he focused on crime and things that are really actually impacting New Yorkers. He was still more of a MAGA type Republican. And I think in a place that's more traditionally blue like New York, you can't have that hardcore right wing sort of a candidate. That's interesting. To be successful. That that might be right. We did did knock off the chairman of the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC as they call it. He lost in his own district to wow. a Republican challenger. That's one of the few seats that, that switched from Democrat to Republican. And that's that's a little encouraging. What's interesting to me, too, is actually that we flipped any New York seats anyway. Because what we saw in Florida, what we saw in Texas, they turned red very, very quickly. Abbott and DeSantis both received over 50% of the vote on election night. And Abbott completely blew Beto O'Rourke out of the water. DeSantis completely blew Charlie Crist out of the water. And it's because a lot of people who lived in blue states that were more conservative, that would vote Republican, that would make it harder for that blue state to wind up blue, even though it would undoubtedly wind up blue at the end of the night, those people have moved to those red states. So now a place like California, a place like New York is actually more deeply blue than it was before. But you're, you're also saying that the states that in, enjoyed that immigration are more red than they were before. Exactly. Exactly. So I am surprised that we flipped New York seats. Oh, yeah. And, and the, well, the other thing that's going on in a place like Texas especially is you've got Hispanics that appear to be leaving the Democrat Party, maybe in droves. Mm-hmm. If that's right, that's that's significant. That's not what Democrats have expected. And yeah. if they can't reverse that, and frankly, I think that'll be hard, That's uh, that bodes well for Republicans down the line. Yep. I pulled some stats from DeSantis's campaign in Florida. So he won, what was it, 59.4% to Charlie Crist, 40%. And he won the Latino vote by 13 points. That's crazy. That is a massive margin. I think you have to give that credit to Ron DeSantis. He really did conduct himself uniquely among Americans. American governors. He was much more resistant to the pressures of, you know, woke America, especially during COVID, famously during COVID. And he speaks his mind. He's not a, a waffling leader. He's a, he's a leader who speaks his mind. You know where he stands. And Florida has done great. What a great story that is. That actually is a really great transition into our next topic, which is about the lack of the red wave, because I want to just start that discussion with Florida as an exception to the rule. We did see a lot of polling indicating that Republicans were going to sweep the nation in all elections, but it really only happened in Florida, first and foremost. So what exactly did Ron DeSantis do that made him so popular in Florida? I think he stood on common sense and he resisted federal guidelines, which were, you know, blue driven. I don't want to, you know, question with sort of a sinister air the the motivations of the left when it comes to masking and school closings and all those things. But each time Florida pushed back and he wasn't afraid 
more than any other governor, he was ready to do battle with the Biden administration and, and did. There was all this criticism over him flying immigrants to New York or Delaware or Martha's or Vineyard. vineyard. <laughs> but maybe in the end, people thought, you know, that makes sense. I mean, I, as a conservative, I, I got a kick out of it. But I think if, if you're an independent and you look at that, it's kind of hard to criticize because the feds are saying, we don't have a problem. There's no immigration problem. So you put it on, right their, on their doorstep. doorstep. And, and what are they? So I think that was sort of political common sense and maybe very effective. I agree. And the pushback that I have talked to people who are on the left about this was the immigrants were deceived. They were deceived into thinking that, I don't know, that they, they didn't really know where they were going or they didn't know that government officials in those municipalities were not expecting them, that it was more of a surprise. And so, I mean, I personally, I feel like that's a little bit of a weak pushback. Uh, yeah, I think you think so. <laughs> People illegally cross the border and, as if they have an itinerary from a travel agent. What? <laughs> you went to Martha's Vineyard? We thought you were going to San Diego. That, that just, that doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't play. Yeah. So I agree. I think the way that he handled the border crisis with shipping all those migrants up north makes a lot of sense. And even from a humanitarian point of view, and I've said this on the podcast before, but border towns in Texas are overrun. Right. And it's more inhumane to leave them there than it is to point them and help them arrive somewhere else where there is space for them. Let me ask you this. Greg Abbott did some of the same things. He bust a lot of people to Washington, D.C., for example. But he, do, he, he doesn't have the same celebrity status that Ron DeSantis has. I think it's because Ron DeSantis did it first. You know, he sort of set the bar and set the tone for the way red states and governments would receive them and deal with it. And Greg Abbott followed suit versus taking initiative. And that's why DeSantis got almost 60% of the vote. He turned a bunch of votes that he did not get four years ago. He earned them. That's uh, that's something we see in American politics very much. That's true. I think DeSantis has a presidential air about him. I think he screams presidential. He's a good looking guy. He stands on his two feet. He's calm and collected about things. But convicted. But convicted. And he's made it a point to talk about national issues every time he talks to the Floridian people. And I don't think Abbott is doing that as often. He's much more focused on tactical state issues like the border, which he should be. But DeSantis has been easily able to insert himself into the national conversation. Well, if you were, if you had the choice of saying your governor is either going to be Greg Abbott or it's going to be Ron DeSantis. I mean, how many Republicans would say, oh, I want Greg Abbott? Right. I mean, out of 103, I, th I think nationally, Ron DeSantis is perceived by Republicans as being a strong, sincere, genuine leader. And I think he's anti-establishment. Abbott has been in office for a while. Interesting. He just got elected to his third term. I want to say when he was up for re-election and there were other Republicans throw in, in Texas throwing their hat in the ring to run as governor, I'd been told that Abbott had actually never been primaried before until then. And I think he's still a great governor. I'm so glad we have Abbott as our governor in Texas because the policies that he has implemented are making life better for Texans. And he's doing what he can on the state level. Ron DeSantis has only been in office for a short time. He did get the endorsement of Trump back in 2018, which helped push him over the line. With, without the that endorsement, line. he doesn't he get elected. Right. And so he represents 
more of the American people and what Republicans feel from a more populist perspective than I think Abbott does. DeSantis, in my opinion, is the best combination of establishment and MAGA you could get. That's why publications like the New York Post post as headlines the future, I think is what they ran with after he won re-election. It's because he is the perfect mixture. And he, in my opinion, is the way the Republican Party should be crafting a new platform around. What does DeSantis stand for? Why do people like DeSantis? Why is he representative of the people? He is. Why does he appeal to all these people? And take a good hard look at that. Well, that's there's so much to uncover there. I, I agree with you. And and if you were going to build a platform around anybody and you were going to have a discussion, is it going to be around Ron DeSantis or X? Mm-hmm. I mean, who is X? Take Donald Trump out of this out of the situation for a moment. We'll talk about that. But who? besides Ron DeSantis, is standing there to carry the mantle forward. I mean, we've got some great people. Kari Lake in Arizona, I think, is 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 suddenly beloved. And, and what a strong, charismatic woman she is. But you already had Christy Nome and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Ted I, I, Cruz. I, oh, I could go on. There's a pretty good list of, of people on the Republican bench. But nobody is ready to be the captain of the team. Right. Like Ron DeSantis. Yep. He's a true born leader. And it shows. It shows. I mean, he, he stands alone. Mm-hmm. It stands out from the crowd conspicuously. I completely agree. It's funny. And I was going to mention this when we talked about 2024, but I think this is a perfect opportunity. Do you know who Mark Penn is? I don't. He's a Fox News contributor, but he used to be a Clinton strategist. So I think he's a Democrat, but he talks a lot to the Fox News anchors. And on election night, he was asked if it's Trump versus DeSantis and then DeSantis wins the Republican nomination in 2024. What does that look like? Can he beat Joe Biden? And Mark Penn, who again has a history being a strategist on a establishment Democrat campaign, said if DeSantis wins the Republican nomination in 2024, he will be virtually unstoppable. He will be impossible to beat. I think it sort of depends on how he wins and on what he says, what his line is when it comes to Trump. Because there are a whole lot of people out there who never voted for a Republican before they voted for Donald Trump. He's got to get those people. Now, if he gets those people, I think there is no stopping him unless yeah. unless he stops himself somehow. And he doesn't seem inclined to do that. He's been pretty careful. But I think, I don't know if you saw it, but this week after Tuesday night, maybe as early as Wednesday, Trump put out a statement on DeSantis. Did you I see did that? I did see that. It was kind of unfortunate. Of course, he's calling him his little cute nickname, Ron DeSanctimonious, which I think sort of invites a criticism as between the two men, which one is more sanctimonious? I'm not sure you want to have that discussion, but DeSantis didn't hit back. And I think he absolutely could not and must not hit back. He has got to keep those Trump supporters. I mean, when, when Trump says he's nothing without me, he's sanctimonious, he's an amateur, whatever it is that Trump wants to say. And DeSantis is confronted with that. Maybe even on a, on a debate stage, DeSantis ought to say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I think you were a great president. You, you are one of my heroes and I have nothing bad to say about you. And in fact, I think you are a sad example of what can happen when there's an unfair media attack against an American. You have been mischaracterized and misportrayed, and it has compromised your electability. There are people in this country who will not vote for you because of false media reports. And that's sad, but that's the world we live in and I can win. Oh, wow. I love that. I completely agree with you. He has got to embrace the guy no matter what Trump does. And, and I say this as a Trump adorer. He's a one-trick pony. He doesn't have the humility to say, you know, I'm sorry if my demeanor comes off as a little harsh. I grew up in New York. It's just how I am. That's the other side of 
the part of me that has strong beliefs and a real love for America. He doesn't even have the humility to say that. So he can't not attack Ron DeSantis. Everybody will advise him not to, and he will still do it. And I was actually looking at it from the other side about what Trump should have done instead of... You can't change what Trump... I got to hear this. What what should Trump have done? Kind of what you're saying DeSantis should do if he's on a debate stage with Trump in 2024 for that nomination... I think Trump should have congratulated DeSantis. I think offering courtesy and respect to a fellow Republican who completely blew the Democrat out of the water. Like he is the example that we all should be striving to be or all Republicans who want to get into American politics and actually win should be. And Trump should have let him own it. Trump should have let him have his moment. He should have congratulated him. And then that should have been it. There was no room on Tuesday night or Wednesday or the rest of this week for anything negative to come out from Trump about DeSantis, because the only thing it does is divide the Republican Party when right now and going into 2024, we need to seriously reconsider the way that we are electing candidates or nominating candidates to be elected and how we're messaging to the American people. Because clearly it's not working. Trump's way is not working. And it just makes him look sad and pathetic and insecure. And do you think there is a single supporter of Trump or or of DeSantis who hearing Trump's criticism would say, oh, hmm, maybe I won't vote for DeSantis. See, I don't think so. I think on the other hand, there were Trump people like me and a bunch of my friends who heard that and thought, you're done. If Ron DeSantis wins, you are done. And I mean, I've talked to a bunch of my friends and we're all pretty conservative people. And only one of them, only one has said, oh, I'm, I'm voting for Trump. After this election? Right. You have to be really honest about why you're still voting for Trump. If you're going to honestly say and declare that that will be your decision. To your point, Trump is a one trick pony and he did a lot for the American people, and he did a lot for the Republican Party when he was elected. He completely re-established it, you know? Oh, it absolutely. Is, you brought new people into the party. It's so much more populous now. It's an actual party of the people. Mm-hmm. But, and we'll get to this later, there is so much discombobulation within the Republican Party. There's the establishment block of the Republican Party. There's the more moderate block. And then there's this MAGA block. And you have to be able to bring everybody together and message your vision of the future cohesively. That is what the Democrat Party is so good at. Every single politician that gets up on that stage that's a Democrat has the same talking points, messaging, point of view, and call to action. And the Demo- or the Republicans don't. And that is why we're so disjointed. We need to be a party that people who don't want to vote for Democrats anymore are running from the Democrat Party, and we need to be a party that they can run towards. It's not good enough for us to just not be Democrats. Oh, absolutely. And so kind of going back to this lack of red wave. Oh, before we do that, I do want to also just touch on the other reason I feel like Florida did so well. And you might know more about this than me, but their election security overhaul after, was it the 2000 election? That's right. So do you want to talk about that a little more? Well, I don't know all the specifics of it, but boy, the results were on display. I mean, not only were there no questions about the security of the vote, but the vote was counted right away. And that's how it ought to be. I mean, it seems to me, no matter what your politics in Arizona, Arizonans should be embarrassed for the second election in a row. The whole country's waiting on them to decide what the hell they voted on. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand that. And, and it's not just that it's evidence of some governmental incompetence or bureaucratic incompetence. It's also fertile ground for people to start doubting the results. If someone comes from behind 
three days after the election. That doesn't seem right. And there will be questions. And it doesn't mean that you're un-American or unpatriotic if you have questions. It's sort of unavoidable. And what were you doing? Why did it take so long to count these votes? And if Kari Lake doesn't prevail for governor, I'll have questions. Right. Because they're counting red votes. And if they come out for the Democrat, that's going to be hard for me to understand. And, and not just me, but we have to have confidence in our elections. Florida did that. And uh, my hat's off to him. Why, everybody should just do the Florida model. Whatever Florida did, everyone should do it. I was listening to Megyn Kelly, and she had some other commentators on her show. And they talked about how Jeb Bush just needs to go and tour every single state that's having issues <laughs> and <laughs> teach them what he did. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Honestly, we do need to. I mean, I think it's fair for the American people to ask that our elections are secure and it should be that easy. There should be no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It should just be secure. People need to have trust in their elections. And that doesn't make me or you an election denier. It doesn't make people in Arizona election deniers. It's just fair to ask the question. Right. Tucker Carlson says we should just go to paper ballots and everyone should turn in a paper ballot and then we can count the paper ballots. And if there's a discrepancy, we can count them again. Mm -hmm. And there can be video surveillance and, you know, a bipartisan review. But if you have a paper ballot, you don't have some crazy electronic message that no one can trace or confirm. I got to say, you know, I actually, in my legal career, had the opportunity to challenge an election that was a paper ballot election. And it was the paper ballots that determined the result of that, of that challenge. Wow. And that's a good way to do it. Because of how fast technology is innovating now, it's hard for people and government officials or people running elections, as an example, to put guardrails in place for technology that's always changing. Right. You have to stay consistently up to date with every single security measure you can to keep it from being hacked, to keep it from glitching, to keep it from pausing out or whatever, whatever might happen. And so I, I agree. I think paper ballots is better. But okay, so going back to the lack of the red wave and what we all need to be thinking about as Republicans going forward and as Democrats. So Democrats, like I said earlier, Nancy Pelosi even said they outperformed expectations, which is crazy to think about because they locked up the country during COVID. Gretchen Whitmer won re-election in Michigan, and she shouldn't have because she was so strict on lockdown. She locked down her state, kept people from working and making a living because of COVID policies that didn't need to be instituted. They were way too far. So they did a bad job on COVID. They continue to push radical, woke agendas. The economy is in the toilet. Inflation is at, what, 10%? And at 40-year highs, the war in Ukraine is also increasing, you know, inflation, spending is enhancing our oil prices and everything else. The fact that the Democrats and Biden cut off domestic oil production in favor of renewable energy and electric cars that aren't even supported by the grid. California literally told its inhabitants, its citizens, if you own an electric car, do not charge it within the hours of X and X because we don't have the power to support it, and even the potential of nuclear war. So how the heck? Don't forget Afghanistan. And oh, Afghanistan. It, it, and just donate a hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment to the Taliban. Yeah, they have access to all of these high-tech American weapons, like even um, night vision, which was an, a huge advantage for us in Afghanistan. They have that now. The Taliban is, talk about you know, lack of women's rights. Let's just talk about Afghanistan. It is a completely regressive country that we botched coming out of. And they still won as many seats as they did. How? 
Uh, that's a great question, uh, especially when you consider that they're the party in power during a midterm election. With one of the most unpopular, if not the most unpopular president. So so the, the, a couple of things we haven't really talked about. The Dobbs decision had to have played some role. And it's it's a mystery how much of a role, and, and maybe people have studied that and I've just missed it. But certainly there were women who, regardless of their political ideology, decided they were going to punish Republicans for the Supreme Court's opinion in Dobbs. Well, you know why? And we'll get to this in a second. Well, I and mean, we can get to it now. Talking about how the Democrats are a party that people who first who voted Republican for the first time ever were running from. Independents argued that Republicans complained way more often than they offered solutions or a vision of the future. And when you talk specifically about Dobbs, think about how many times Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and AOC and any other high-profile Democrat member of Congress came out and said, if we take the Congress back or if we maintain control of Congress after these midterms, we will codify Roe v. Wade into law. Here's what we're going to do with our given power. Here's how you can expect us to wield that power as a voter. Well, and on the flip side of that, Lindsey Graham was saying we need a national abortion ban. What, why he would say that at this time, I, I can't I can't imagine. I've kind of been a Lindsey Graham fan over the years, not so much recently. But if you are, just assume, I mean, put the passion aside and just assume that you're a, a pro-life Republican. Why in the world would you promote a national abortion ban right now or a month and a half ago when he was doing it? Why would you do that? You have no chance of getting that ban passed why you don't control the Congress. And saying you're going to do it is is politically disastrous. Maybe maybe disastrous is, is too strong, but it's disadvantageous. If you polled the country, there's going to be a federal law, and it's either going to say everybody has a right to abortion or it's going to say abortion is banned. Most people would say, well, then it needs to say that everyone can have an abortion. Right or wrong, that's where the majority is. So why would you right. Why would you flick your, your finger at those people? I don't know. Maybe you overestimate how many people are adamantly pro-life right now but you've got those people already i mean what you, you there is no political advantage in him having done that none and no practical advantage it wasn't about to happen and now look that's just a dream that's gone up in smoke mm-hmm. i mean they could still try to do that in january can they still can they actually codify roe v wade into law if the democrats win congress is that actually possible or yes. is that it is yes they could pass a federal statute but that would get challenged or somebody would challenge it and bring it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And if, if Sam Alito were to look at that law, in order to strike it down, he would have to rule, and he and four other justices, that that is an, an overreach of federal power and to pass a statute on a right that should otherwise be determined by the states. That's a rare opinion. They don't issue that opinion very often and strike down a federal statute. Yeah. But when it's in direct opposition to their Supreme Court ruling, do you think it would be different? Well, the Supreme Court ruling is not that you can't have an abortion. Right. It's that it's a state issue. So if they were true to that, I mean, but there, but there wasn't a statute that said that. They didn't overrule a statute. They just overruled a Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. Had there been a statute, would it have been different? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Another reason why, in my opinion, Democrats actually outperformed, I think it's a widely known fact that Democrats took a risky move and invested money into more MAGA Republican campaigns during the Republican primaries because they anticipated they'd be easier to beat in the general. It looks like they were intelligent. They were right. What happened in Pennsylvania? You had a Trump appointee. Trump endorsed. A Trump endorsed somewhat Republican. Now, Dr. Oz was a little bit of a crazy candidate. He's wishy-washy. He doesn't really have a strong foundation in a certain value set one way or the other. 
It's, it's certainly not conservative. I mean, wasn't he in favor of gender-altering surgeries for minors? Was he? I think he was. I, I think he had a talk show where, where that was sort of celebrated. And that was as early as January of this year, before he became a candidate. And wasn't he pro-choice until like a few months ago and then switched right. his tune? And he didn't even live in Pennsylvania. People described him, Pennsylvanians described him as a carpetbagger. Right. <laughs> so the fact that he got beaten by Fetterman, and I think everybody kind of feels sorry for Fetterman. Yeah. It's, it's not clear that he really understands what he's doing. No. Have you seen, have you watched any of his speeches? Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, the guy, I pity the guy. I, I do. I mean, he has, he has brain damage. Mm-hmm. Actual brain damage. The left celebrates him for that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna believe that that's common among the left. But there are people on the left who celebrate the fact he's a better candidate. They say he 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 represents a different kind of diversity. We don't have enough brain damaged people in Congress. I mean, is he going to be the you know on the ticket? Is he going to run for president? I mean, golly. Do you know there was an anchor on MSNBC who floated his name for president? Like, could he? Could Fetterman be the nominee? Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Uh, I think her name's Katie Turr an anchor on MSNBC, and floated his name as a potential presidential nominee. That's remarkable to me. It is. And this was on Megyn Kelly's show that they were talking about this. Megan and her other commentators and contributors, they apparently know this anchor. And they say, we love her as a person, but the media class is a little more elitist than the common person. And so... Anyone that seems to appeal to the blue-collar worker, to an elitist MSNBC news anchor, seems like, oh, well, maybe we can we can be the party for the working class because this guy appeals to the working class because he beat Dr. Oz, who is kind of an elitist in his own right, pretty easily. <laughs> what was the vote count in Pennsylvania? I don't know. Fetterman won by f- over 50%. It was 50.3% of the vote. Okay, so it was pretty close. And a quarter billion dollars were invested into that race, by the way. $250 million? That's what it said. And Obama went down to campaign. I mean, they put everything into this, and it paid off. Pennsylvania is just one other example of proof that a candidate who prevails in the Republican primary may not be the best candidate for the general election. And not to pick on Trump too much, but his endorsed candidates didn't fare very well. Only J.D. Vance did, right? Right. He's the only one that was endorsed by Trump who won his election. Is that right? Oh my gosh. If that's true, that's a that's an abysmal record. I'm sure there were more, but he's the most prominent. The most prominent candidate to win with Trump's endorsement. But he's also a good candidate anyway. The people of Ohio liked him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he was a good candidate. Grassroots guy, common man appeal. Oz didn't have any of that. No. But, but we had, the party has to stop listening to Trump endorsements. And it's a shame because... Trump was in a position, I mean, if Trump wrapped his arms around Ron DeSantis, not to go back to that, and said, this is the guy who I think ought to be the president, there'd be no no stopping him. Not at all. You could rally everybody around him. But I think you're right. Trump might be too narcissistic to understand that he's not the star anymore. Oh, I I think that's an understatement. That is beyond Donald Trump's bandwidth to figure that out. Yeah, which is disappointing because I really expected him to be more presidential than he has come across over the last few days and in this last week coming out of the midterms. I thought that he was rising above it and the media, especially on the left, were just smearing him so unfairly. And they were, but I had hoped that everything they were saying was untrue. And there's a little truth. There's a nugget of truth there. He is too narcissistic to understand what he's doing to this party. Do you think there's anyone alive who could talk him out of running for president if he wants to run. I don't think so. I don't think so either. And here's a, here's a bright side to that. That gives Ron DeSantis, that, that, that makes 
that debate, primetime television, yeah. lots of people would want to see that debate. People on the right and on the left. They would, it could make a jillion dollars on pay-per-view. Trump versus DeSantis. That's theater people would tune into. And it gives DeSantis a great opportunity to talk to independents and Democrats before the nominations are, are secure. Yeah, that's the thing the Republicans didn't think about. Independence, the more moderate wing, the people who actually decide general elections. Republicans are going to vote for Republicans. Democrats are going to vote for Democrats. So who are you influencing with your campaign efforts? You're influencing the middle, the independents, the moderates, the ones who swing from right to left and actually vote on issues versus party alignment and party affiliation. And the Republican Party overestimated how popular Trump was with independence. He leaves a bad taste in their mouth. I think that's right. I think independents are done with Trump. Especially now. Well, now a whole lot of moderate and even some conservative Republicans like me are done with Trump. I would say this, and I don't think I'm atypical. I can't think of a Republican who I wouldn't vote for over Trump in the primary. I mean, and I love Trump, but but his time is gone. It's over. He's not good for the country or the Republican Party. Do you think you would feel differently if he reacted differently to DeSantis winning? Sure, but that would be he would be a different human being. Yeah. He doesn't have the ability. I mean, he, that was a written statement he issued the day after. That wasn't done accidentally. That was done with some thought. And either he was getting advice from people who said, yeah, that's a good idea. We need to knock him down now. Or he was totally ignoring the advice people were giving him. Either way. I mean, and I don't know who he's relying on, but some of his former advisors like Kaylee McEnany would have advised against it. And in fact, have advised that he should not make an announcement this week or next week, that he should wait. Didn't she come out and write an op-ed about that? Mm-hmm, she did. It is kind of mind-blowing to me how the wind is changing in regards to Trump. Even Candace Owens has come out this week and said, my opinion is changing on Trump. And she basically said what you were saying earlier the media treated him so unfairly and his transformation between 2016 and 2020 he went from and she didn't say this another conservative influencer said this but when he ran in 2016 he was having fun and he had a more unifying message make america great again and it was a very reagan influenced type of campaign and he it was this positive forward-looking message and because of everything that he went through during his four years as president the slander and the smearing that he received from the other side of the aisle from other politicians and from the media made him on defense he was put on defense and that was the only thing he could do was defend himself and say i did this i did this i did this and it became more about me 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 and here are all the ways that i was wronged and here's what i did do for the country during my four years but it's not unifying that message is not unifying no the american people don't care about the hard trials and tribulations that you have gone through in the last four years personally i mean it's harsh to say but the american people want to know that you're going to make their life better in the next four years and so how are you going to do that and he changed that unifying message to being more me 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 and then once the 2020 election wrapped up and there were shenanigans here and there and everyone was questioning the results and trump really did feel like the election was stolen from him and never got the closure he needed on whether or not it was and people were going to do something about about it or if he genuinely did lose he could never accept it and he became angry and his entire demeanor changed and this is what Candace Owens was talking about after feeling haunted by the results of the 2020 election he just stayed in an angry place an angry and vengeful place and that's where he still is he can't let it go and other commentators I was listening to over this last week even connected 
what they were seeing happening with Trump now to what they saw other past presidents who didn't win re-election and how how they were feeling and acting when they lost. And still to this day, like apparently Jimmy Carter is still a pretty angry person. George H.W. Bush couldn't really let it go before he passed away. And feeling like your future of being that close to victory was you had it and it slipped through your fingers at the last second is not something easy to get over. And I have sympathy for someone like Trump, but now you have to move on. American politics changes so fast. People aren't concerned about the results of the 2020 election anymore. People are concerned about their wallet. People are concerned about their kids' education. Some people, especially on the left, are concerned about the Dobbs decision. And the conversation isn't about 2020 anymore. He needs to move on if he's going to be relevant. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. First off, if DeSantis runs, do you think DeSantis can win the nomination? I think it's too early to tell. I think if he ran right now, let's say the nomination, the Republican primary was tomorrow, I think it would be close between him and Trump. But I think he could pull it off. So let's say DeSantis runs and let's say he secures the nomination. Do you invite, if you're you're the chairman of the, of the Republican Party, do you invite Trump to speak at the Republican convention? No. Okay, so here's my last question. If you if, if Trump loses in the primaries and he's excluded from the convention, does he run as an independent? Probably. Well then I have another question. If Trump <laughs> runs if Trump runs as an independent, can DeSantis win the the election? Probably not. Which is why I think Trump would do it. Wow. Because he's that petty? I'm sorry to say it. Yes. It's all about Donald Trump. He loves America. And I think he sacrificed greatly for the benefit of this country. But since 2020, since the loss at the polls or the declaration that Joe Biden was the was the winner of that election, Trump has been angry, like you've said, and it's it's about him. Then let me ask you, how do you placate Trump? If DeSantis becomes the nominee and we want to make sure... I think you have to take the risk and you have to bring him to the convention, not knowing what he's going to say, not knowing if he's going to help you. You have to bring him in. Make him feel like he's part of the team. Yeah. Maybe you make him the Secretary of Defense. Hell, I don't know. I mean, that's probably not the right... I don't even know if he'd be interested in a cabinet position. Have any past presidents been cabinet members in another administration? I think maybe that has happened, but but I can't tell you when. And certainly it's very, very rare. And frankly, I think it could never work with Donald Trump. He needs to be the star of the show. Mm-hmm. He may be a, a real problem for Republicans. Especially now, if he doesn't change his tune. This is what's essential. The Republican Party needs to look inward. And this is really where I think the meat of our discussion can come into play. But we need to figure out what our message is going into 2024. And we need to make sure that we are on offense and we are talking about what our vision is for the future, not just we're not Democrat and we're not the people who skyrocketed inflation, put us on threat for potential nuclear war, completely botched our foreign policy with China, Afghanistan, and Russia. You know, we're not those people. We are different people, but you can't just run on that. What can you run on that is a unifying message that every single candidate can repeat that is almost like repetition to give the American people something to hope for? What can you do? And so that's that, That's the other problem. Not only is Trump a problem, if he decides that he's going to make it his mission to be a problem for DeSantis the entire time, but the problem is we need a unifying message. It's two-pronged. We also need to appeal to younger audiences. So you're like... 12 years old, aren't you? <laughs> I, mean, I look at you, I think you're still 12. <laughs> How do you appeal to younger audiences? You, you got to be where they are. And it's harder because all of the institutions, big tech, social media, Congress, universities, any major institution in America for the most part is blue and pushing blue mm-hmm. policy and ideology. And so 
as a Republican to maintain conservative values in this country, you have to go on offense and meet people where they are. And it needs to be the same message across the board because a lot of people from Gen Z went out and voted and it's because of the things they see on TikTok and the headlines that they see on the Daily Beast or CNN or wherever else they consume news that makes it seem like Republicans are evil people that need to be voted out of office and are fascist. And if Republicans win in the midterms, then our democracy is no longer a democracy and, you know, the world's going to end. And as a Republican Party, you have to appeal to those same people and figure out how to message to them so you can educate them and pull them into your party. And Republicans are not good at that right now. In my opinion, I don't know if they've ever been good at it. They're, they're not as tribal as Democrats. That is to say, they're, they're, they're focused on governing first and preserving their own power second. And, I, and I'm not sure that the Democrats line up the same way. And I know that's a very partisan thing to say. But you look at the votes in Congress and nothing matters. All, the Democrats who say, I'm gonna go in, I, I want to work across the aisle, that, that's, I don't want to say it's a lie, but it's an absolute fantasy. There's no working across the aisle. It's party line. In, in a way, that's to their credit. But I think it's because they subordinate good government to party politics. And yeah. the Republicans don't do that as well. And maybe that's something to be proud of. But in the game of politics, I think you have to be. In some ways, in some ways, you have to be to be able to fight fire with fire. And I don't know if that's a good thing. It's definitely not unifying. Not unifying. It is more divisive, and I'm not over here saying we need to be more divisive than the country already is. I don't really, and I don't want to go that route, but I wonder how you combat the successes the Democrat Party has seen with pushing their woke ideology across TikTok. How do you, how do you combat that? Well, I don't have an account on TikTok. But that's an example. You know what I mean? No, but you're right. It, it, that's an example of where the young people are, as you said. And, you know, I'm, I'm 60 this year, and I... I'm not in the same place as, as a lot of those young people are. And so I don't understand their mindset as well. Maybe w- what the Republicans need to do is make sure they get some office holders who are on TikTok. Some younger generation yeah. candidates. Like uh, like if they could maybe find some you know attractive young woman from someplace like Dallas and, <laughs> and convince her to run for Congress, for Christ's sake. Is that what you're trying to use this podcast for? <laughs> Vote Jane Marie Genevine. <laughs> Trust me, she's awesome. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> I actually, um, as a side note, just made a TikTok account for this podcast, and I asked Julia to help me with video content. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> My or, sister, or maybe that. I'm not sure how that'll go. It'll be entertaining. It might, it might crater your political career, but it will be entertaining. Isn't that part of it, though? I have talked to people who have run for Congress, and they say you have to be somewhat of an entertainer, in a sense, in the media eye, in order to have a voice in Congress. If you think about a representative, they run for re-election every two years. They're constantly campaigning for the next re-election. People right now, days after midterms, are talking about 2024 already. How stressful. Can you get any legislation done? I don't think so. I don't think AOC has really done a whole lot. I'm not sure you could name a single thing she's done. Right. But she's, you know, this arbiter of... She's the work woke flag bearer. She is. But she has a lot of support. She does. She's got a lot of grassroots support. She's basically the younger female version of Bernie Sanders and maybe a little bit more radical. And people love her because she inserts herself into national conversations in the media, on her social channels. She's an influencer. People want to know what she thinks about things. I'm not sure it's well thought out, but you're right. It might not be thought out, but it doesn't matter. If you can say something quickly in a soundbite that's 10 seconds long, that sounds really, really good, then you're you're golden. Think about Biden's Build Back Better 
plan or the Inflation Reduction Act. Unless you read into what those policies and bills actually say, then you're like, yeah, let's build our country back better. Yes, how are we reducing inflation? Let's go. But that's what you get from the attention of the American people. Sound bites, really cool slogans that sound really good. Even talking about abortion as an example, pro-choice versus pro-life. If you woke up one day and you lived in a cave for like 80 years and you walked out and somebody said, are you pro-choice or pro-life? What sounds a little bit more safe to say? What sounds like the less polarizing argument? You're suggesting pro-choice, but, but that I think pro-life is a real good label as well. I do too, but... For people who are pro-choice, it feels safer because it's an umbrella term. Right. You have choices. That's right. No one should take your choices away. You're legitimate No one should choices. take your choices away. But pro-life obviously is a really great way to combat that, but it seems like you're combating an extreme that's not there if you're pro-choice. Does that make sense? Because pro-choice is a euphemism for pro-abortion. Right. Exactly. But they're not saying it's pro-life versus pro-abortion. It's pro-life versus pro-choice. Right. And... For any person who doesn't know a whole lot about the issue, pro-choice is a very well-labeled, well-branded euphemism to call it pro-abortion. Right. And my point, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but my point is that the Democrat Party is really good at creating slogans that are euphemisms for certain policies that they want enacted. And you can bring a lot more people on the bandwagon that way. It's a messaging strategy. They're so much better at marketing themselves and branding because... Who doesn't want to be on board with, yeah, you should choose. You should have the right to choose, have your choices. You should have the freedom in a free country to make a choice, right? Right. But that's not what it is. So what I'm saying, looking into 2024, and it maybe needs to be longer than that. I don't know if the Republicans can get it together before 2024. They need to figure out how to do the same thing or go on offense. Right. The Republicans are constantly on defense and they waste time defending their views and what their values are versus going after people who are trying to mutilate kids. And Ron DeSantis does that, doesn't he? That's why he's so popular. He calls it out. His victory speech, he ended it with saying, Florida is where woke goes to die. Mm -hmm. On the offense, you have to take an offensive position. That's a great example. And, and he sure did that. That's why he's, and he's been doing that. And that's why he won 60% of the vote because he goes on the offense. He made an appearance at a school or something where there were some young people and there were three or four, maybe five young people behind the, the podium wearing masks. Mm -hmm. As he came up to the podium, he said, take off the masks or leave them on, but stop with the COVID theater. He was never playing ball with the Biden administration's mandates. Never. And, and like you say, he was on offense. Take the masks off and calling it COVID theater, which I think is appropriate. And I think that's why he is so popular. And when you were asking about Abbott versus DeSantis earlier, they're both very popular governors, especially now. But who's more, more on offense? Who's leading the charge on offense? No doubt. And even talking about 2024, it's a very thin silver lining, I would say. The Democrats are going to see this midterm election and their performance in it as the American people endorsing their policies. When you think about what usually happens to the party out of power during midterm elections, they have a right to say we have a mandate. And I heard today that Biden has said nothing will change. We're going to continue to operate as we have. And I say that that's a thin silver lining because we're going to have to grope through a lot of mud in the next two years, metaphorically, to get to 2024 with them not changing a single thing they're doing. But they will make more and more people angry the longer that this goes on. The, the Democrats will? Yes. So at I this, hope you're right. So the reason I say it's silver lining is because if they're making more and more people angry over these next two years, 
by not changing anything and doubling down on all of their woke agendas. And at the same time, Republicans are getting their act together and they're unifying their messaging strategy. They're going on offense. They're talking about the cultural issues and they're providing a future vision of what the country should look like and what they're going to do once they're in power to make all of this better. Then they will sweep in 2024. But they have to do that first. They have to look inward while the Democrats are continuing to dig their own grave. I think you're right. So knowing that the Democrats are going to double down on their woke policies and hoping the Republicans get their act together, hasn't Biden basically been given the green light to run again? I don't think so. The electorate has has not reprimanded him, but everyone knows that he's incompetent. Everyone knows there's someone else holding his puppet strings and manipulating him. And it's not even as embarrassing as it used to be. I think yesterday or or early today, he's in (laughs) Cambodia and he thanks the president of Colombia for hosting. Oh, geez. So let me back up and say, it's, it's not even as embarrassing as it used to be because it doesn't surprise anybody, anybody in the world. Everybody knows that Biden is compromised. And this is an American president, a sitting American first-term president who has made an announcement in the last week that he will make a decision and an announcement about running for office again early next year. That's what he said. Can you imagine Trump saying halfway through his first term, we'll decide about whether we're going to run for a second term? Of course not. It would have been assumed already. He wouldn't even need to announce anything. Not just Trump, but that's every previous president. And so the fact that this president has said he's going to make an announcement and a decision early next year, what I think that means is there's absolutely no way he's running. And, and I don't think that, that he will. The same forces that orchestrated his nomination right on the eve of the South Carolina primary, where Buttigieg and Klobuchar pulled out, those same forces will control him and say, you're not running for president again. Right now, though, I've heard reports that Biden does plan to run and he's excited about running and he thinks he's the only one that could beat Trump again in, in 2024 if Trump is the nominee. And I don't know if he's wrong. I wonder if other people could, I wonder if Hillary could beat Trump now. I think Trump is compromised. Yeah. I think Trump is, is less of an effective candidate than he was two years ago. Would you say that before, prior to the midterms? I would not have, but I think the midterms have shown that he's compromised. He's not all that and a bag of chips. He is an angry has-been. The other advantage I would say DeSantis probably has over Trump right now, if he were to run in 2024, if they were to be pitted against each other in a primary... DeSantis is literally still in office and has a list, a litany of accomplishments to speak to. He handled the hurricane crisis very well. He's handled COVID very well. He's handled education very well. And people have been flocking to Florida because he's the governor. Trump has been out of office. Situationally, he doesn't have a whole lot of recent accomplishments to speak to. So what is he going to campaign on? What are his rallies about right now? What he did two years ago. That's right. And in 2024, it'll be what he did four years ago. Right. It's not going to be what he's going to do to fix it. So I, I, I hope that Ron DeSantis will run. But but I, I swear, as I keep looking forward, I don't know how, I don't know where Trump goes. I don't see Trump humbly riding off into the sunset. It's just not in his repertoire. I think he feels... That he got the short end of the stick, mm-hmm. and he's not going to let it go. And he may have. And it's a sad, sad deal. It is. It really genuinely is. I know if I were in his position, I'd like to think I'm self-aware enough to know that I would let it go if I needed to, but it would be very hard to get over. When you know you were wronged, when you didn't do 
anything and you were so unfairly treated so unfairly villainized and so many people hate you because of it even though you did everything for this country and you made it a better place your policies were great the security of america was was great (laughs) to continue to use great it's kind of a play on words with the whole make america great again and keep america great but if i'm trump and i did all of these things for these people who are ungrateful then I'm a person scorned. And I don't know how I get over that, but you have to. It's unfair that he is in the position he is in now to have to get over it, but he does. You think there's any, anyone around him who's telling him that? I think he surrounds himself with people who tell him what he wants to hear. I suspect that's true. So probably, I don't know. I, I, I just dread the possibility, and if not the probability, that someone's going to tell him if DeSantis beats you as a Republican, run as an independent, and you'll keep DeSantis from winning. But is that more important than... To who? To you? To me? Or to Trump? To Trump. I mean, honestly, but you're going to take somebody down with you and take the country down a direction it might not be able to come back from and reelect a potential Biden again? With a with at least one Supreme Court justice likely to resign in that time. Right. You're going to set our country up to go down in flames. I mean, maybe that's exaggerated because of the Bloody Mary that I'm finishing. <laughs> <laughs> But this is what happens, Dad. You get me drunk, and then I just get way too passionate. <laughs> this is why it's called wine in politics, not liquor in politics, vodka in politics. <laughs> but I'm just saying, that would be really sad and devastating for America. And maybe I'm speaking hyperbolically, but I don't think I am because of everything that Democrats are doing right now. If our country goes downhill and we don't elect a Republican president in 2024 to keep all of these things at bay and go on offense, then what will our country look like in 2028? I hear you. It can be an ugly vision. So my advice is vote Republican and have another Bloody Mary. (laughs) Okay. So I appreciate the advice to just continue drinking. (laughs) Um, It's very on brand. But let's wrap this episode up then with what's what's some silver lining or something positive, something we can be optimistic about? Well, not to overstate it, but I, I think Ron DeSantis has shown us not only that Ron DeSantis is a special leader, but he has shown us that an ideology works. And, and there is a shining example out there that's hard to refute. It's anti-woke. It's anti-federal uh, strength. It's anti-centralized government. It's pro-states rights. And it's pro-freedom. And Florida is going to enjoy the fruits of that leadership more than any other state. And, you know, more power to them. Yeah. My, my hat's off to them. And, and I hope, boy, it's not just a thin silver lining. There is a shining example of how states ought to be and how they ought to govern. And I hope, I hope other states follow that example. I hope Texas follows it even more than we already do. I agree. And, I, well, I do think that's why Abbott won over Beto. Because that wasn't very contested. He has also shown ideology works and action works. His efforts at the border are why he got reelected. And Beto, and I will say, bless his heart, doesn't offer. Do you mean that in a condescending way? I kind of (laughs) do. I kind of do. And maybe that's mean of me, but Beto now is a three-time statewide loser. Yeah. And and I think it's not just because Abbott has been productive, but Beto doesn't really offer anything. He he flip-flops on all the issues and doesn't have a plan or a record of accomplishing anything. I saw that he said, I'm in this for life. So I think we're going to hear from Beto again. And I guess people can just hold on to their Beto for Texas signs because they'll come out again. Right. But but I, I'd like to think that we're through with that. And, and maybe the Texas Democrats will be through with that. That's up to them. He burned through upwards of $50 million in campaign donations and funding. Any idea how much of that was that from outside of Texas? 
Um, probably a large portion of that, uh, I would By assume. far most of it. Because the Democrats have a, an incentive to turn Texas blue. Oh, they'd That's, love to. If Texas goes blue, it's over. It's Yes, it's over. And I actually had a conversation with Dusty about the border um, and how maybe the whole Biden and the Democrats promising immigrants will be taken care of and welcomed with open arms into a state like Texas is advantageous to the Democrats because those people are going to be voting blue. And when you can get enough people eventually voting blue, but when you get enough people who feel like the Democrat party has taken care of them in Texas, especially through immigration, they're going to vote blue forever, especially if they're not very informed. But for for each of those people, there are also some resident Hispanics who have considered themselves Democrats who've been playing by the rules who can't really believe what's going on at the border. Yeah, that too. Although there were definitely some races that tossed up and went back to blue after this midterm. Like, Meyer Flores lost. I didn't realize that. I think Monica De La Cruz won, though. So there's been some toss-ups here and there, but Meyer Flores lost. That that county is blue again. And I think another one that was red, uh, like a, you know, a Hispanic woman who was Republican was running against a Democrat, and she lost too. Well, my dear friend Luisa Del Rosal is trying to mobilize the Hispanic vote for Republicans and specifically Hispanic women. She's such a talented woman. I hope that she'll be able to pull that off. I really hope so. That's another thing that Republicans need to work on this year is really understanding who their new base is and appealing to them, actually driving messaging that resonates with them versus just being a party that's not Democrat. That does not work. You have to be a party that people who are leaving the Democrat party run toward. Give them a reason to vote for you. Don't make it harder to vote for you. Right. Give them a reason. Give them a reason. And it's not good enough to not be the other. So those are my final words. And they're good ones. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, I know we're not drinking wine, but if you had to rate this Bloody Mary that you made, what would you rate it? Well, I will tell you that the Tabasco Bloody Mary sauce, Bloody Mary mix that we used, combined with a little lean parents and a little horseradish, really made a good a good Bloody Mary. You would you would give it a thumbs up? I give it a thumbs up. I'll give it a compared to the one we had before because we're drinking. This is our second Bloody Mary we've had on this podcast. I'd probably say I actually think I might like this one a little better. I think so too. It's a little more balanced, but still really strong. Mm-hmm. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dad. Well, I have really appreciated this conversation that we've had. Do you have any final thoughts? My final thought is get behind Ron DeSantis. He's the future of the Republican Party. I love it. All right, everyone. If you're listening, it's been Wine and Politics. And thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. This has been great. Make sure you share this podcast with a friend and you give this episode five stars wherever you listen. And we'll see you guys next time. All right. Thanks, guys. (laughs) 